Nothing unusual these days about uh, women flying in space, walking in space, living in space for months on end. Yet uh, back in 1969, the idea of women astronauts was an absolute no-no for NASA. Women were deemed too physically and mentally fragile to handle the rigours of space and uh, they also had to battle deeply sexist attitudes here on Earth. But in 1978, along came not one, but six trailblazing women. And their story is told in a new book by our next guest, Bloomberg's space reporter, Lauren Grush. Lauren's book is called The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts. And Lauren's on the line from Austin, Texas, to tell us more. Lauren, welcome to LNL. Tom Wolfe, of course, famously wrote that uh, Armstrong, the first bloke to walk on the moon, was... uh, made of the right stuff. So can you introduce us to um, NASA's first six women astronauts and please tell me what kind of stuff they were made of? Absolutely. So I like to go in order of how they flew. Uh, Most people might be familiar with Sally Ride, the first American woman to fly into space. After her was Judy Resnick, the second American woman and first Jewish American astronaut to fly. Third was Kathy Sullivan, the first woman to perform a spacewalk, a first American woman to perform a spacewalk. Fourth was Anna Fisher, the first mother in space, followed by Ray Seddon. And then Shannon Lucid was the last, but she would go on to fly more time in space than the rest of them. And in terms of the right stuff, you know, um, that is really open to interpretation with the six. They all had extremely diverse backgrounds. Um, You know, Sally was an astrophysicist and a tennis player, Judy Resnick, an electrical engineer. We had two medical doctors, Anna and Ray. Shannon was a chemist and Kathy was an oceanographer and geologist. And so they really are illustrative of the fact that there was no right stuff, at least for these first six women. They all took very diverse and unique paths to get to the space program. And I think that's really inspiring for people who think they have to have certain things on their resume to get to space. Clearly, you do not. It, it can be whatever path, whatever path you want to take. Well, Lauren, you have the right stuff to write about them. Tell the listener about your uh, family background. Absolutely. So I like to say that space is in my blood. Uh, both of my parents met at NASA. They worked on NASA's space shuttle program, which is also a big part of this book. And so I grew up outside of the Houston area in Texas in the United States. And so my life was filled with space shuttles and astronauts and the dinner table conversation was all about hydraulics and water spray boilers and all sorts of technology. I didn't quite understand at the time. Um, But ultimately I chose to go into journalism uh, just to kind of chart my own path of, of or away from space, you know, I think we can all remember being a teenager and um, not necessarily thinking what our parents did was very cool. <laughs> so I was just I was the same way. But when I started choosing the stories that I picked for 
my journalism career, I saw, I found myself gravitating towards stories of space and kind of having this new perspective uh, about what my parents had done. And so that's ultimately what led me to become a space reporter and, and write this book. Lauren, I can't remember my teenage years because they were far too long ago, but uh, <laughs> tell me what made NASA change its mind. Was it the, the well, I suppose society was changing, wasn't it? It was a both an external and an internal change. So yes, you know, as the United States transitioned from the 1960s to the 1970s, we had the civil rights movement and we had the feminism movement. And so NASA was getting quite a lot of questions externally about why the astronaut program had not been opened up to women and people of color. And then internally, there were also efforts to uh, portray just how bad the state of diversity was within the agency. I detail a story about Ruth Bates Harris, who, went, along with a few of her colleagues, put together a report that looked at what the statistics were within the space agency. And it painted a pretty abysmal picture in terms of what kind of, how many women were employed, how many people of color were employed. There's a great quote. I don't know it off the top of my head. I should know it by now, but it was something to the effect of NASA sent three women into space. Two of them were spiders, one a monkey. So (laughs) it just really... A great line, isn't it? Yeah, it really painted... A, a grim picture of, of the state of diversity. And so it was getting to be something that NASA just could not ignore any longer. And then when it became time to select a new crew for the new space shuttle program, they really put bringing women and people of color top of mind in that selection process and ultimately led to their success. I'm very impressed with uh, Ruth Bates, Bates Harris who's, of course, a, a black woman, and she was given the opportunity to, uh, well, to talk to NASA about uh, matters of race. Yeah, and unfortunately, her story was poorly handled, or at least her employment was poorly handled. You know, she came on in a role to help boost inclusion and then was kind of demoted to a lesser role. And then ultimately, after she made that report, she was fired uh, being called a disruptive force, you know, NASA tried to walk it back and say it wasn't didn't have to do with her report, but you know, the word got out and the headlines kind of went wild with that after they heard what had happened to her. And so it was kind of the the Barbara Streisand effect, you know, once once she had written that report <laughs> and then they, she, that she was fired, everybody knew about it. I learned from your book that women were pushing to try and get into NASA back in the 60s. What were the uh, Mercury, or rather, who were the Mercury 13 and what happened to them? Sure. So they're a pretty famous group of women who, as you mentioned, back in the 60s, really wanted to fly to space. So a lot of them were pilots and they came on to uh, Randy Lovelace's program to see if they had the quote unquote right stuff to to go to space. They passed the same weird physical tests that the Mercury 7 had gone through and they had all passed and some of them wanted to keep training. So they just wanted to further that, that initiative and see if they could you know, push the boundaries even further and see if they had what it takes to handle the rigors of going to space. 
But ultimately that training was cut short and which ultimately led them to lobby Congress to see if they could get that to keep going and also convince NASA and lawmakers that it was important to send a woman to space. And that was actually part of, a, you know, a national imperative to do so. The issue was the cultural biases at the time were just too strong. You know, NASA and lawmakers didn't really see it as a priority to send women into space. They were locked in this race with the Soviet Union to send the first man to the surface of the moon. And I think the prevailing attitude at the time was that, oh, anything that would detract from that endeavor would be a distraction. It would, it's just not something that we want to entertain. And so there are a lot of sexist attitudes in terms of, well, if we, if we fly a woman and something goes wrong, you know, that would be a detriment to the program. And so ultimately, you know, the women were just brushed off and they never really got that opportunity to keep training for space. And then eventually the Soviet Union sent Valentina Tereshkova into space, and they they did claim that title of having the first woman to to fly to orbit. What what I wonder motivated the Soviet to uh, to send a woman into space was it to trump the Americans? Oh, it definitely was to trump the Americans. The Soviets did always like to claim the first title on things. You find that out later in terms of when they when Sally Ride flew, they obviously, you know, wanted to send up another woman to to beat Sally and also to beat um Kathy Sullivan to do a, a spacewalk. So, you know, they 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 certainly did like one-upping the United States, but I wouldn't necessarily call them, you know, a feminist. Uh, country just because <laughs> no. these were, you know, the NASA did brush off Valentina's flight as a publicity stunt, which was ultimately a, a terrible way of framing it, but they might well, not have been wrong. The American media were really quite uh, rude about uh, Valentina. They uh, mocked her plump figure and even her lack of lipstick, uh, Lauren. Absolutely. And even after she flew, you know, there were these terrible rumors that came out about her that she, you know, had some kind of nervous breakdown during her flight or that she was hysterical. You know, they really tried to paint this picture that, oh, she just couldn't handle it. And that means women can't handle space. And so there, there was a lot of effort to downplay her accomplishment because it just wasn't seen as something that that was that was a race that NASA did not see to, as important to win. I'm talking to Lauren Grush on uh, LNL about her book, The the Six, the untold story of America's first women astronauts. Lauren, I remember interviewing uh, Stephen Walker about his biography of Yuri Gagarin, and we talked about astronauts having to train for hours on all sorts of, well, vomit vomit-inducing machines. What, <laughs> what, what kind of training did NASA's women undergo? Absolutely. So in order to, probably the more exciting part of the training is that they needed to stay current on NASA's fleet of T-38 jets. So some of the women came in as pilots or had some piloting experience, but they'd never flown jets before. So they were backseaters in the T-38s. So they always had to fly with a with a pilot who had flown a jet before. And that really taught them how to, you know, handle complex machinery, to stay cool in a cockpit atmosphere. Um, they weren't, they were allowed to, you know, take control of the controls when they were in the air. They weren't 
technically allowed to take off and land, but few of the former their former male colleagues spoke to me and did admit that they let them fly, take off and land. So they had to get 15 hours of flight time per month. They also had to undergo uh, water and land survival training. So in order to fly in those T-38 jets, they had to prove that they could survive if they ever had to bail out in some kind of emergency. So they had to practice landing under parachutes on land and in the water. But most of their training was spent, you know, in the classroom, learning the ins and outs of the space shuttle, every subsystem, every component, just in case something goes wrong while in orbit. You know, once you're in space, you can't call a handyman or IT to come fix something <laughs> that breaks. You have to handle it yourself. So they really needed a very thorough knowledge of, of all of those components. And then what you also mentioned, you know, there was a fun element to training known as the vomit comet, which I've actually ridden on myself. It's a parabolic flight that you, that you take this really interesting route, uh, in order to induce zero gravity or, or free fall. And so that gave the women a taste of what microgravity would be like. It's only for around 30 seconds at a time, but it does give you a brief taste of that weightlessness that you'll feel once you get into orbit. Lauren, you also describe pretty harrowing psychiatric evaluations. Yeah. So in order to get into the program, you know, each of the finalist candidates, there are roughly 200 of them, had to come down to NASA for a week and undergo uh, medical evaluations just to make sure they passed a routine physical and then they also had to pass a psychological evaluation, which I thought was so fascinating because each one, every astronaut described it to me as a good cop, bad cop scenario. You know, there was a good cop psychologist who would ask you how you felt about your family in warm tones, or he would ask you what animal you wanted to be if you ever came back in a second life. Uh, and he was very friendly and open and warm and welcoming, whereas the bad cop psychologist would ask the candidates to count backwards from 100 by 7 and then stare at them sternly or yell it, <laughs> proclaim it very loudly whenever they inevitably messed up. I know I can't count backwards from 100 by 7 easily. So, um, but ultimately the the way they they got into the space program was undergoing an hour and a half long interview with the selection board. And that was really what determined whether or not they had what it took to be an astronaut. It, it really allowed the selection committee to figure out what their hopes and dreams were, if they had the right background for the space program, if they were patient enough to handle being an astronaut. I think a lot of people forget that being an astronaut as mostly on the ground, you're only in space for a very short amount of time. And so that's a lot of waiting and supporting other people's flights and, you know, working on new tools and new technologies on the ground. And so selection committee really wanted to make sure that they were all okay, you know, waiting for their turn in line, which can be very hard when you're a competitive person who has the right credentials to be an astronaut. Lauren, how did uh, Sally Ride get the first ride? Yeah, so that was an interesting thing to learn about. So there's a uh, a very important character in the book known as George Abbey, and he was the director of flight operations at the time at JS JSC. And ultimately, it came down to his decision. He was also on the selection committee, and 
he was the one that put together the crews for the space shuttle. So he was kind of known as the astronaut maker, as somebody else deemed him, his biographer deemed him. And, you know, it really came down to his decision. He was the one that put to, the put crews together. And so the astronauts really built, built up this mythology around him because they knew he was the guy that could get him, get them into space. And so, you know, they were always trying, vying for George's attention um, and the the thing about George is he really didn't tell people why he made his decisions. He didn't tell people where they stood. And so it could be a bit of an opaque uh, experience for them. But when it came time to picking the first American woman, you know, he was definitely cognizant of the fact that the first woman was going to get a lot of attention. But ultimately, you know, he he was picking a crew for this flight known as SCS-7. And it relied very heavily on what's known as the remote manipulator system or the robotic arm. And at the time, Sally Ride was a, a, an absolute pro at that uh, system. And she'd also been given some really juicy roles prior to that where she was a Capcom in Mission Control. So she was a liaison but in between in Mission Control between the crews in space and the people, you know, working on the ground. So that was really valuable experience for her. I understand that George, not only talking about robotic arms, I understand that George was also quite impressed with her backhand as a tennis player. <laughs> yeah, and that was also something about, that was something that was in her favor when she was selected as well. One thing that the astronauts really needed, or at least was very attractive them for them to have was a very diverse background. So working on the shuttle, uh, there, you didn't want to be, you know, a specialist in just one thing. You needed to have a wide variety of interests and be able to work on many different systems and many different technologies. And so the fact that Sally was a, an astrophysicist and a tennis player worked in her favor because it showed that she we had an interest in a lot of different things and also keeping her calm and her cool on the tennis the tennis court probably was in her favor as well and then also it was Sally's personality that might have tipped the nod for her as well you know she was a bit of an introvert and not really one to seek the spotlight and so when i spoke with bob crippen who was her commander on sts7 the flight that would make history you know he mentioned that one of the reasons that he discussed with George about why Sally might be good is they didn't think that her getting this nod and being the first American woman would go to her head and it'd be something that, you know, would make her super boastful. So I found that really interesting. So clearly it wasn't just her her skill on the robotic arm, her personality <laughs> and her background definitely you know, played a role as well. Lauren, she mightn't have sought the spotlight, but she sure as hell got it to such an extent that uh, when that half a million crowd gathered in Florida, amongst their number was Jane Fonda and Gloria Steinem. Absolutely. I mean, prior to her flight, you know, they there was definitely a lot of media interest, but one thing that NASA tried to do was to really kind of shield her from that. And they would use the fact that she was training as an excuse to turn down interviews. Um, obviously, it was getting to be quite a lot. She ultimately agreed to speaking with the Washington Post, though the person who wrote 
those articles was her friend, her childhood friend. She also did interviews, you know, TV interviews and was on numerous magazines before she flew. But really, she tried to stick with training. It wasn't until after she came back from her flight that she was really inundated with all sorts of media requests. That protective barrier of training was gone. And it really took a toll on her just because it was so oppressive and so it was just an avalanche of of uh, requests. And NASA wanted to wanted her to take them, obviously. It was a big moment for the space agency. And so they encouraged her to to entertain the media, but that was just not Sally's way. And so at one point after getting, uh, you know, getting a request from the Bob Hope show, which she was not a fan of, she kind of just disappeared because (laughs) (laughs) she didn't want to do it. And that was just, that was just the way Sally was. She was also aware of the, of the dangers of misogyny. And uh, she, she felt that if she sort of made any mistake on the trip, on her mission, that would be blamed on her gender. Absolutely. And I think a lot is loaded in that. She she even openly said that before she flew. She told her friend and uh, broadcaster, Lynn Schur, that she was her, her biggest fear was that she was just going to mess up. And I think what's loaded in that phrase is whenever you're the first to do something like the first woman or the first American woman to fly to space, you know that you're not just representing yourself, you're representing all of the women that are coming after you. So I think she was very cognizant of the fact that if she somehow made some huge blunder, that it wouldn't just be the headline wouldn't be Sally Ride messed up in space. It would be <laughs> Women, woman messes up in space, you know, and that would be a setback for all the women that came after. But obviously she, you know, she performed her job spectacularly. There's an old saying of the cap fits wear it. Did the space suits fit? <laughs> well, that's an interesting discussion. So when the, the six came into the program, one of Anna Fisher's early job was to try and help develop a, an extra, a small and an extra small upper torso for the new shuttle spacesuits. Um, the way the the shuttle spacesuits work, and to this day how they work, is uh, they're a bit like Mister Potato Head. You know, you have a, a an up a torso that fits your body based on the size that you are, and then you plug in the arms and the legs, and but really it's that that torso area that uh, dictates what the size is. And at the end of the day, you know, Anna was a very, it was, is a very small astronaut. And so they were hoping that with her work with the spacesuits, they could help design an, a smaller and extra small. But really, they they abandoned that goal. And, you know, that's kind of had repercussions for, for years and who, who is able to perform a spacewalk. So many of the smaller women in the program just haven't been able to do it because they don't have a suit that fits them. And when it comes to a spacewalk, you really need the proper fit. You know, it's it's a pressurized suit. It's not very dexterous. You have to push really hard against the fingers and the gloves to make sure that you can grip things. So if you don't have a proper fitting spacesuit, uh, it really can be detrimental to your work. So that's precluded a lot of of smaller and women specifically from doing spacewalks throughout the program. Lauren, let's now talk about the the sad story of uh, Judy Resnick. She flew to space once and then on her second flight, it was the infamous uh, 
Challenger accident when uh, the space shuttle exploded just after takeoff, killing everyone on board. What impact did that accident have on NASA and indeed on its women astronauts? Absolutely. Well, Challenger was a very big wake-up call for NASA. You know, up until that point, NASA had really considered the shuttle operational and that it was routine and reliable and cheap and safe, but ultimately that wasn't the case. And I think, you know, as time grew on, there's there's been a lot of books and analysis about what happened, but, you know, there's a great discussion from Diane Vaughn about, you know, the normalization of deviance. And ultimately NASA was just accepting more and more deviant behavior. And, you know, it's like that analogy when you you put the frog in the boiling water, you know, <laughs> if it's already boiling, he'll jump out. But if you put him in the water and turn up the temperature, you know, that that's really, you know, how you get them. And so uh, once the Challenger accident happened, obviously it was a, an incredible tragedy for the agency, but they really reevaluated all of their safety procedures in light of the accident. You know, um, when they started flying again, there were a lot of more barriers in place to protect the astronauts. For instance, the biggest one was uh, giving the the astronauts uh, pressure suits. You know, I was actually pretty shocked to learn that the very first astronauts didn't fly in pressure suits, which they all do now. That's kind of standard procedure, but they only flew in basically flight suits. And, uh, you know, so it was things like that, that they started to introduce in the wake of Challenger just to, to, to add more redundancy and make sure that there was some kind of way that the crew might be able to survive in case there was some form of an accident. Now, obviously the shuttle didn't have a true abort system, like some of the, the crew capsules do today. So, you know, there's, it ultimately might've led, there was tragedy uh, later on in the program. As space reporter for Bloomberg, you've uh, written a lot about how, of course, space exploration is now being taken over by uh, very wealthy oligarchs. Are they better in their attitudes to women? Well, I don't want to speak for them specifically, but I think with this new rash of commercial companies that are interested in space and and working to send people to space i think we just need to be more vigilant than ever you know these are definitely companies and they're tech companies and you know within their ranks there's still similar problems that we're experiencing throughout the tech industry so that comes with biases you know um a, a workforce that skews male and also sexual harassment. So I won't. I don't want to speak for how the men feel personally, but we do need to keep an eye on how these companies are being run. Because if those issues are being ignored in the workforce, then it's you know it it kind of dampens what we're trying to do by sending people into space if we're not taking care of the people within those programs. Lauren, I'm very glad that you're keeping an eye on them, and uh, I'm also glad that you uh, joined me on the program. That was uh, Lauren Grush, a space reporter at Bloomberg and author of The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts, published by Virago. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.